You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Those were bad days in Israel. The Assyrians, the terrorists of that day, had been ordained of God to come and take captive the northern tribes. And the people of Israel lived with the dread of that coming terror hanging over them and hanging over their families. Words such as gloom, distress, anguish, contempt, darkness, all describe the minds and the hearts of the people of Israel in this era. But as the people stumbled along in the gloom, God got their attention, calling them to look ahead, to look at the horizon, and to see a light shining, a light of hope, a light of the coming deliverer. But what did this coming deliverer look like? Would he look like one of those mighty angels that the people of Israel had experienced now and then over their history? Would he look like some sort of mighty warrior with military strength? More I probably need to ask in our culture, would, did he look like some of the superheroes of our current movies? The answer to what would the coming deliverer look like, the answer may surprise you, even as I'm sure it surprised many of the people in 700 B.C., You see, the Deliverer was announced in a birth announcement. Please join me in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. The book of Isaiah, chapter 9. And this morning we're going to spend our time in the first seven verses. A birth announcement. But this birth announcement was unusual in that it was a birth announcement of a king. Now the people of Israel had surely heard birth announcements coming out of the capital in Jerusalem previous times. Since the days of Saul and David, uh, there had been other birth announcements of princes being born there in the capital, there at the throne of Israel. But this birth announcement was unique. This birth announcement was unlike any other that had ever come about a coming prince because this announcement was about God's coming Messiah, God's eternal, divine Messiah. Follow along now as I read aloud from the Bible, Isaiah chapter 9, the first seven verses. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, back in Gideon's day. 
For every bead of the tramping water and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here it comes. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. <laughs> there is so much in this passage that we won't have time to dwell with today. But what I'd like to do with you this morning on this Advent Sunday, do you, do you see those four titles of the coming Messiah in verse 6? Why don't we just spend our time letting our hearts, our minds marinate in those four glorious titles of the coming Messiah. The first one, verse 6. Wonderful counselor. Now, now what's a counselor? Now we have counselors in our day, but in Old Testament days, a counselor would have been an advisor. Someone who gives direction, someone who gives perspective, someone who gives comfort. A good counselor, then, even as now, is someone who cares and someone who's wise. This combination of a warm heart and a clear thinking, a clear mind. But this coming deliverer was called not just a counselor, but called wonderful counselor. Now, what does that mean? What does that word wonderful mean? Uh, I'm a word geek. I was curious. So I started looking for other places in the Bible they use this unusual word, wonderful. Well, we use it kind of casually. I mean, people send me short text message. If it's good news, I'll probably answer something like, wonderful. <laughs> you know, we, we kind of throw that word around, don't we? But what does this word mean? In the Old Testament, what does this word, wonderful counselor, mean? Let, let me just give you one place that uh, I think opens our minds, open our eyes to see the depth, the uh, the joy found in this word, wonderful. Back before Samson, the judge of Israel, was born, an angel came and gave an announcement to his parents. And Judges 13 says this, And Manoah, that was Samson's dad, And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. <laughs> Manoah was basically told, you don't want to ask my name because it's going to go right over you. <laughs> my, my name is wonderful. This word often has the idea of being beyond human explanation, beyond human words, something that astonishes us, something that goes beyond our wildest imagination. And so here God says, look at the horizon in your gloom. In your gloom, look at the horizon. I'm sending my deliverer. Do you know who he is? He's the wonderful counselor. He has care, love. He has wisdom that goes beyond your wildest explanation, beyond your wildest imagination. 
He's the wonderful counselor. How does that impact us? How does this title of the coming Messiah impact your daily life? Today, this week, this month, this coming year. We all face times when maybe we're confused or we're discouraged. We're not sure what to do. And we think, boy, I sure could use some counsel. I, I sure could use some help here to know what to do. And, and what do we do? What do we do whenever we need advice, whenever we need counsel? A lot of times we look inside of ourselves. We think, oh, I, know, I need to figure this. I need to figure this out. And we think somehow the answer is found within ourselves. And, and we'll, just, we'll just think on this for a while and we'll come up with a solution. Or probably even more common is this. Whenever we're... We, we feel like we need an answer to something. We, uh, we reach for our phones. <laughs> I do it too. You know, we reach for our phones. We think, I'm going to call so-and-so. I'm going to text so-and-so. See if he or she will help me out here. I'm, I bet he or she has an answer to that. Or, or maybe it's just a Google search, you know. <laughs> what do I do with my problem here, you know? And we, we're, we're looking for solutions. We, we reach for our phones. But here God says, in your darkness, in your gloom, in your confusion, your discouragement, your depression... I'm sending you, I'm sending you my deliverer. And there is a wonderful counselor. Friends, Christian friends, why are we not running more quickly to the wonderful counselor? He's given us his word, his precious word, that you and I have the privilege in our era of having the word of God in our language, accessible in print or electronically, it's there for us. Why don't we more quickly run to the word of God saying, what counsel does my wonderful counselor have for me? He cares about me. He has wisdom that goes beyond my wildest imagination. Why don't I seek him? Why don't I seek his counsel in the word? Or in prayer. We have the spirit of God. That we run to the throne room of God in prayer and say, Lord, help me. Help me know what to do here. Help me understand. Give me perspective that I would make a decision here that honors you. That we run to the wonderful counselor in his word and his prayer. I, I have to remember this myself, so I've given myself a maxim. If it helps you, you can, you can use it. You don't have to credit me with it. But, but what I try to remind myself is, go to the throne before I go to my phone. You can remember that, right? Go to the throne before I go to my phone, just using this symbolically. I run to the throne room of God and I seek the caring, loving, wise counsel of my wonderful counselor. What's the second title given there? Mighty God. That's an astonishing title, Mighty God. Now, I have seen people that are a little uncomfortable with that. They say, well, the Messiah is not really God. I mean, he's God's spokesman, God's prophet, uh, but he's not God himself. And, and so they see this title in Isaiah 9, 6, and they want to water it down. They, they want to make it sound like something. He's a great person, a mighty person, instead of mighty God. And so I started looking. Where else in the Old Testament does it use this word, Ilgabor. Let me tell you some of these I found. I'll just read some of them. I had to pick. Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, 
the awesome God. Nehemiah 9.32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Same phrase. Jeremiah 32, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, mighty in deed. You look for the same phrase in other places in the Old Testament, and it's speaking of God. And so when God said, 700 years before Bethlehem, I'm sending my deliverer. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. We do not need to water that down, my friends. We ought not to water that down. Now let me, let me challenge you as one of your pastors. We're talking about Jesus Christ being divine. The deity of Jesus Christ. This is not a small issue. We're living in a day where more and more people begin to doubt the clear teaching of God's word. And they're going to push on you, kids, at school. They might push on you at university. They might push you at your workplace or even around the extended family table at holidays. People that say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Why are you so passionate about saying that Jesus is God? He never claimed to be God. Oh, really? Now, we can be respectful. We can be polite. But quite frankly, Jesus did indeed claim to be God. Let me just read some of these to you. Let me just, since we're in the Gospel of John here, normally at CCC this coming year, let me just read some from the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Or a little bit later in John 8, Jesus said, you, are, you people here are of this world. Listen, he says, I'm not of this world. Jesus said that, I'm not of this world. Same conversation a few verses later. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Jesus answered, some of you can finish this with me. Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, if you'd been standing there that day when Jesus said that, you probably would have taken a step back. Before Abraham was, I am. He's making a statement to his own deity, and the people in that crowd understood quite clearly what he was saying. They tried to kill him. They tried to kill him because they understood clearly what he was saying. John 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews took up stones to stone him, and Jesus said to them, I've shown you great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, Jesus, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus did claim to be God repeatedly. He was the promised Messiah. He was the promised mighty God come in the flesh. That's Jesus' words. Did Jesus do anything to show his godness, his deity. He showed himself to be Lord over the wind and the waves. He showed himself to be Lord over sickness. He showed himself to be Lord over demons. He showed himself to be Lord over Satan. He showed himself to be Lord over death. And the one that should take our breath away, he showed himself to be Lord over sin. That he forgave people their sins. Who but God can forgive sins? What did other people say about Jesus? Well, John, the writer of this Gospel of John that we're studying on Sunday morning, said this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Thomas said after the resurrection, he saw the resurrected Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. Paul, in writing about the Jews, said in Romans 9, from their race, the Israel race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. The author of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The clear teaching of the Bible is that Jesus is God come in the flesh. And God prophesied 700 years before Bethlehem that the, the deliverer whom he was sending was the mighty God. So how does that impact how you live on a day-to-day -day basis? Is that just some theological subject that the uh, eggheads around here like to sit around and debate over coffee? How does Jesus' divinity impact your daily life? Well, I can think of a couple ways. How about this? It gives us full confidence in Jesus. We can put full confidence in him. We can rest in him, rely on him without any reservation that someone might stop him, that someone won't let him do what he said he was going to do. Because he's God. But nobody can stop his hand. Nobody can keep him from fulfilling his promises. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And some of you wonder at times, how, am I losing my salvation? Might I lose my salvation? And, and you think, how can I hold on to Jesus? Well, I want to remind you something. Jesus is holding on to you. And Jesus said, nobody can snatch my people out of my hand. I'll tell you what, knowing who, who said that, that he's God come in the flesh, that gives me confidence that I'm secure in him. That, that gives me full confidence that I can trust Jesus. Whatever he says he's going to do, he will do. And that also should move in us not only full confidence, but full obedience. What was the last thing Jesus said moments before he went back to heaven? Just moments before he went back to heaven. What did Jesus say? He said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, therefore, go and make disciples for me. And when you and I hear that call, we hear that commission and we obey fully because those are the words of God come in the flesh, the mighty God, our Messiah. He has all authority. Full confidence, full obedience. What's the third title? This one might set us back a step or two. Everlasting Father. Now, wait a minute. I thought he was God the Son. I mean, this is messing up with my trinity here, you know. Here's the Son being called Everlasting Father. Well, we're not messing with the trinity here, friends. This is a title, a descriptive title. It's telling us something about him in character. What's true of the ideal father? An ideal father, what, what would you say are descriptors of an ideal father? Well, he gives life. He gives life. Your father, whether you even knew him or not, your father gave you life. Ideal fathers give life. Jesus said that he gives life, John 5, 21. He gives life to whomever he pleases. An ideal father gives leadership, the leader of the family. And Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae, said that Jesus Christ is the head, the leader of the church. You know, we have a leader here at CCC, and his name is Jesus Christ. We have full confidence in him. Ideal fathers give love. They give life, they give leadership, they give love. 
And this Jesus was heading for the cross. He repeatedly told his men that night, as I have loved you, as I have loved you. Jesus is the ideal father. You know, some of us had godly fathers. I had a godly father. But you know what's true for me and it's true for some of you in this room? Your father here isn't here anymore. My dad died seven years ago. Some of you have lost your dads along the way. And that's sad. But you know what's true about Jesus Christ? He's the everlasting father. He died, but then he rose again, never to die again. And you never have to wonder, will he be there for me? Sometimes we have to ask that about our dads. Will he be there for me? And even the most godly, consistent dad won't be there someday because he will die. But Jesus Christ is the everlasting father. He'll always be there for us. What difference does that make? Well, worship, hope, ultimate salvation. Because he's everlasting, because he lives forevermore. What's the author of Hebrews say in chapter 7? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. So when you and I stand before the judge's bench on that great day, by the way, when you, you picture yourself standing before the judgment seat of God, what's your hope going to be on that day? What? Where's your hope on that day? I, I tried very hard, God. I, I was sincere. I think I did my best. Man, that, that, that doesn't hold any water, does it? That, that is my hope. But if on that day you look up at the judge's bench and you see the face of your Savior, you see the face of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and you can say, I am his, and he is mine. There's your hope in Jesus Christ, the everlasting Father. And the fourth title that we can marinate our minds and hearts in, the Prince of Peace. What is peace? What, what is peace? Well, usually we, we want to come up with something like, well, it's the absence of hostility. Now, you know, there's no more war, no more conflict. That's what peace is. Well, the, even if you don't know any Hebrew, you've probably heard the word shalom, right? Shalom, sometimes people say it as a greeting. Shalom, even if you're not Jewish. Shalom, it's a good word. Shalom it means more than just the absence of hostility. It means the presence of something. It's not just what isn't there, it's what is there. And shalom means the presence of wellness, wholeness, harmony, unity. I think with my simple mind sometimes it means everything's okay. Everything's okay. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. It's shalom. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Well, what, what peace has he brought? Well, he's brought peace between man and God, God and man. What's the most important question you can ever ask? I mean, there's a lot of important questions in life. Should I go to college? Should I marry this person? Should I quit my job? I mean, there's all kind of questions that are really important. It's going to affect your life. But there's one question that makes all other questions pale. 
there's one question that arises above all other questions in its significance. What is that question? It's this. How can I, a sinner, ever be made right with a holy God? That, that's the most important question anybody can ever ask. How can I, a sinner, ever be made right with a perfectly holy God? You see, we, all of us here in this room, no matter what your age, your sex, your ethnicity, your race, we all have something in common. We are all image bearers. God made us human beings as his special creation. We're all to reflect him. We're his image bearers. And we were to give him glory consistently as his special creations, as his image bearers. And we were to have this shalom with him. We were to have this, this harmony with him, this peace with him. And yet our ancestor Adam and his wife Eve chose to rebel against God. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God and they heard God coming, what was the first thing they did? What was the first thing they did? They hid. Isn't that tragic? I mean, that's more than a little bit sad. That's, that's devastating. It's a travesty. That when sin entered the human race, the race of image bearers, the first thing they wanted to do was get away from God instead of running to God in peace, instead of running to God in shalom, in this wellness, this wholeness, this unity, this harmony. The first thing they want to do is get away from Him, get away and then God, when he talked to them and judged them for their sin, he expelled them from the garden. And so now there's this division, a real division, that is also symbolic. That we are estranged from the God who made us. We image bearers are not at shalom, not in shalom with the God who made us. And what reconciliation could there ever be? God never abandoned his plan to live in shalom with his image bearers. Never abandoned his plan. But what he did was he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to come as the deliverer, to come as the Messiah. He sent his own son to be the prince of peace. That Jesus Christ, and he alone, perfectly kept God's word. He perfectly did everything his father told him to do. Jesus Christ never left undone anything the father told him to do. He never did anything the father said not to do. He and he alone perfectly kept God's law. And then, on top of that, he died to pay the penalty for you and I not obeying God's law. And as proof that what he did worked, he was raised from the dead and now is ascended into the right hand of God. He is the Prince of Peace. He brings peace between God and man. But you know, the whole work of redemption, I think we need to appreciate this because this doesn't get talked about that much, but the, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it did affect our reconciliation with God, but it also affected the reconciliation of everything else in this universe. When Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced a curse upon this universe. Everything's broken. Every living thing gets old and dies. Even inanimate objects wear out. Things don't work all the time. But Jesus Christ's death on the cross came to reconcile all things to God. And eventually there will be this, this fixing of all the broken things. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20, significant verse says, And through him, through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus Christ brings shalom to this created universe. He brings peace with us and God, between the universe and God, and he brings peace between man and man. Reconciliation is an important issue. Do you know what the basis of true recon racial reconciliation is? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Reconciliation between man and man comes through the Prince of Peace. It comes because of Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. And he's the Prince of Peace in that he brings peace to our confused and hurting hearts, even internally, individually. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Hours before the cross, you know, I, I, John, we're going to get there in our study of the Gospel of John, but when you get to John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, by the Holy Spirit's direction, John hits the slow-mo button. And he starts an eternity past. <laughs> so he's, he's covering a lot of ground in the Gospel of John. But when he gets to chapter 13, he hits the slow-mo button. And he wants us to soak in those hours before the cross. And Jesus knew that he would be dying on the cross in a matter of hours. So what's he going to say to his men with that limited time he has? How about this? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Jesus is reminding his men of his peace. Friends, do you sometimes feel like your life would be described with words like gloom, distress, anguish, contempt, darkness, I didn't pull those out of the air. I pulled those out of Isaiah chapters 8 and 9. Do those words ever describe your life? We sometimes say here at CCC that we're living in this era between the gardens. The Garden of Eden is past. It's lost. The Garden of the New Heavens and the New Earth is yet to be revealed. We're not there yet. And so we're traversing this era between the gardens. And this era between the gardens has pain and disappointment and confusion. And there are times when each of us feels the gloom of living in this era between the gardens. And for some of us, it's maybe a short-lived gloom. Whenever we experience some particular disappointment or pain, the loss of a loved one, uh, seeing our own sin, being sinned against painfully. Uh, but for some of you, 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 your life is almost dominated by gloom. Some of you wrestle. You wrestle against the darkness on an almost daily basis. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? Whether it's passing or whether it's dominant in your life, what are we supposed to do whenever we're tempted to give in to gloom? What hope is there to lift the gloom and to shine light 
into our minds, our hearts, our lives. My friends, the promise of Isaiah 9-1 still stands. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. What I want to encourage us to do is this. Whenever we're battling the temptation to give in to gloom, whether it's temporary or long-lasting, that we battle the temptation to give in to gloom with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to talk to ourselves. I think it was the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that said, we listen to ourselves and we should be talking to ourselves. <laughs> think about that. You know, sometimes we listen to ourselves. Oh, life's hard. My life's hard. Why is my life so miserable? Why aren't things working out? And we listen to that. And Dr. Jones, Lloyd-Jones says we need to talk to ourselves. We need to address ourselves in those situations and say, remember who you are. Remember who Jesus Christ is. Remember your Messiah. And the gospel causes us to lift our eyes and to look back at the light that already has come. We look back at the first coming of Jesus Christ. That God says, I'm sending my deliverer. I'm sending my Messiah. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we look back and we see God kept his promise. For to us, a son has been born. To us, a child is given. We, we have the Messiah. He's ours because of Jesus Christ. Have come. He's come. The Father's given us his own son. We preach the gospel to ourselves by looking back. But we also preach the gospel by looking ahead. There's light on the horizon. We're still walking in this era between the gardens. But if we're going to battle against the gloom that can so easily come in our fallen world internally and around us, we need to lift our eyes and to see the light that God has promised that is yet coming. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings hope that Jesus is coming back. A few minutes ago, I was describing for you that the hours before the cross are extremely important in John's gospel. He's recording for us there by the Holy Spirit's direction what was important, what was on the heart of Jesus as he was going to the cross. Let me read to you again from John 14. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, don't give in to gloom. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus tells us hours before the cross I want you to be with me. I, I want you to be with me. And he says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And I'm going to come back having prepared for you. We don't talk enough about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not, not in our current evangelical culture, not even here at CCC. I think... As individual Christians and even as a local church, we should give more attention to the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. My friends, one of these days, we're going to hear a trumpet. And we're going to see our Savior's glorious face. 
shining like the sun. And on that day, on that day when Jesus comes back, he's going to finally give death its death blow. He's going to ultimately, finally kill death. And he's going to wipe with his sovereign tender hands, wipe the tears from our eyes. There won't be any more sickness. There won't be any more sorrow. There won't be any more death. All the wrongs that we've ever lived with will be made right. All the broken things will be made whole. All the divided things will be brought into unity and harmony. And we will live with an eternal shalom. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, gives this glorious promise about the return of Jesus Christ. It said there, listen, it says there will be no more curse. You know what that means? There will be no more curse. Way back, way back, way back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced judgment upon this whole universe because of Adam's sin. He says, because of you, image bearer, because of you, Adam, this whole world, this whole universe is going to experience brokenness and disunity, disharmony. But when Jesus comes back, the second Adam comes back, when Jesus Christ comes back, our Messiah, he's going to lift the curse. He's going to lift it. And there won't be any more brokenness. That broken relationship you have, it, it, there won't be any brokenness. The broken things around you, they're not going to be broken. <laughs> Everything's going to be made right. Everything's going to add up. Everything's going to be whole under Jesus Christ. What, what did we sing a few minutes ago? That old Watts hymn. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. No wonder they call that joy to the world. <laughs> Aren't you homesick for that day? When all the wrongs will be made right? Friends, whenever you're battling the temptation to give in to gloom, look back at the light that has come, but also look forward to the light that is coming. We're not living in the last chapter. The life you're living right now is not the last chapter. There's another chapter yet awaiting us. Peter wrote this to people who are going through hard times. Peter wrote his first letter to people that were going through trials. And he said this. Right at the beginning of his letter, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Peter says it's like this treasure we have. It's like this inheritance we have. God's keeping it for us, and he's going to give it to us on that day that we see the second coming of our Messiah we fix our eyes on that. We fix our hearts on that. That what we're experiencing now is not the end. It's not the final chapter. Read the last two chapters of the Bible. Just read them. Read them, read them slowly. Then go back and read them again. <laughs> Revelation chapter 21. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We can set our hope in that. We can set our hearts in that. Friends, we also struggle with gloom, distress, anxiety, darkness. But we, by God's grace, can push back the darkness. The gloom is lifted when we see the light of the Messiah who has come and when we believe in the Messiah who is coming again. 